Jerusalem Talks ND, a series of conversations organized and recorded by the University of Notre Dame with the purpose of amplifying the unique encounters that are made possible through the initiatives and presence of the university in Jerusalem and the region at large. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Daniel Schmacke. I'm the executive director for the University of Notre Dame's Jerusalem Global Gateway. Um, I'm actually very happy that we're doing one of these podcasts again. We've been doing the Jerusalem Talks ND for three times now. We had a break. Now this is the fourth episode. I'm excited to see all our students here with us tonight. Um, so Jerusalem Talks ND is a series of conversations that we organize, we record here with the idea of amplifying and sharing the encounters that are made possible through the initiatives that we have here with our colleagues and students um, in South Bend, but also with our partners around the world. Tonight we have the honor to welcome Professor Khouri Kasabri, who will be speaking um, with our own of Roomborg. Professor uh, Khouri Kasabri is Vice President and Strategy of Strategy and Diversity and Dean of the Paul Bervolt School of Social Work and Social Welfare at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. In her role as VP for Diversity, Professor Khouri Kasabri is responsible for determining and implementing the university's overall policies and strategies and models for promoting diversity and inclusion, specifically increasing the accessibility of groups currently underrepresented in Israeli academia, including ultra-Orthodox Jews, Palestinians, Jews of Ethiopian descent, first generation to higher education, and people with disabilities. In recognition of her achievements, Globes, Magazine nominated Professor Khouri Kasabri on its annual list um, of the 50 most influential women in the country. So we're obviously uh, going to be touching uh, on a lot of themes tonight in, on, in the pace that a room will dictate. Uh, but I'm assuming we'll also talk about diversity and inclusion, uh, two words that basically are splitting worlds apart today. Uh, for some, diversity and inclusion are at the heart of humanism, values that we need to um, translate ASAP into measures and corrective measures uh, to empower the marginalized. For others, these are buzzwords, buzzwords that powerful people use or abuse, um, especially we in academia, are ridiculed and attacked for being detached, condescending hypocrites, powerful elites that use identity politics in cynical ways to further increase our own standing by appeasing our students and weakening the voice of the true majority. So we at Notre Dame are obviously struggling with this. Other universities around the world are struggling to design the right, um, to design and implement strategies that, are not, um, that do not only increase diversity and inclusion in a candid and sincere manner, um, but are also backed by, 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 by measures that of appropriate communication and advocacy for the underlying values. After all, fair access to education and higher education is, are the cornerstones for a just and a critically thinking society. So before I turn the word uh, to Avrum, just an explanation for this group. Um, Avrum will lead the discussion. Uh, it will be only him and Professor Khouri Kasabri speaking. Um, but I do encourage everyone to, to think about questions, because at the end, uh, everybody will have the um, ability to come up here to this microphone and ask his or own or her question um, to, to our speaker tonight. So you can start thinking about them. All right, Avrum. The floor is yours. Thank you very much, Dani. Thank you very much, all. Peace on you, Muna. Shalom alaykh. Shalom, marhaba. Marhabten. Um, you are a step, one step before divinity. You are vice president. Next one, you're president, and that's divinity, right? But let's roll the carpet back. Before, for a while, you were an advisor at the University for Minority Affairs. Who is a minority in Israel? Who is not? So it depends. For this rule, I was the advisor for minority affairs for issues related to the Arab population. But now when I'm talking about diversity and diverse groups... I cropped it into yeah. minority affairs. Minorities affairs. So when we talk about 
the minorities, of course, we are talking about the Arab population, which is the largest minority in Israel. And then we are talking about the ultra-Orthodox population. We are talking about the Ethiopian uh, uh, immigrants and uh, people with disability. And it depends in which context we are talking about minority. We are talking about minorities or underrepresented groups in the academia. So in many cases, there is a group that is not like minority, but in the academia, it's underrepresented. For example, people with disabilities, compared to their percentage in the population, they are, they are underrepresented in the academia. So we include them in our- Before we lock ourselves in the ivory tower and uh, enjoy the corridors of wisdom, is there a group in Israel, or is there a group between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, which does not perceive itself as a minority? Or are we just a coalition of minorities colliding into each other? You know, I think everyone, I'm not sure, like I'm not sure the Ashkenaz uh, majority males, if I would ask you, do you think you are minority? Have you thought about yourself in any time as a in minority? In the minute I am 1% into majoritarian society, I resign. I mean, I cannot be conceptually part of a majority, but I will say nowadays, yes. So if I would, take it from this point, I would say as a social worker, everything is in context. Mm -hmm. So I can feel as a majority and the Arab students or Arab peoples who study and live all their lives in Arab villages and study in Arab schools, the sense of minority is not emphasized as when they come to the university. When they come to the university, they are for the first time maybe, they noticed exactly what is being a minority. When we live, when I was a student in Haifa, even in the mixed city, I lived in an Arab neighborhood, I went to Arab school, I knew that I'm minority. You know, I didn't think I'm majority, I'm Jew, you know. But I didn't feel it exactly as I, feel it, as I felt it when I came and suddenly I saw all the others and I noticed that I am minority. Actually, Again, it depends on the context, because when I grow up in my elementary school, I went to the school with my neighbors, okay? And we were all poor kids, so I didn't feel a minority. I feel like someone like them. When I moved in my uh, high school to a private school, I felt a minority, but based on the socioeconomic status, and not as an Arab, because we all were Arabs, but then I noticed that there are a lot of rich people around me, and I was among the poorest. But when in my elementary school, it wasn't the case. So it depends, again, the context that we are talking about. Politically, of course, you are a minority now in the way you think and the, the way, so. Context-wise, it's, it's very interesting because it's, everything becomes so subjective and, and so circumstantial. I will say, at least for the collective of the Jews, we have a split personality the following way. Within the legitimate Israel, the legal and legitimate Israel, we, we the Jews were 80%. Between the Jordan and the, and, and the, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, we're 50-50. And in the region, we are dropping the bucket. So at every given moment, we are both a total majority and a very tiny, uh, insignificant minority. And this is a kind of a split personality of many societies in Israel, I would say. But let's move on. Minorities. Minorities' affairs. What are the affairs of the minorities? In that role specifically? Yours, whatever you address. I mean, you are for us a reflection or a mirror into a Jerusalemite reality yeah. for our audiences overseas. So what are the affairs you are, you're facing? So there are a lot of, I think... First of all, let's think about it. I didn't mention actually first generation to education as a minority group, mm -hmm. okay? As a very large underrepresented groups in the academia. And if we talk about all these groups that I mentioned earlier, many of them f face a lot of common things. For example, a lot of challenges when they come to the academia. They are not, they don't have the tools and skills compared to the Jewish majority. And again, we will not go now deeply what is the Jewish majority because we can keep arguing about the Jewish majority that it's not exactly majority. But let's think about the Jewish and even other groups that come that they are not first generation to education. 
they come to the university very much prepared to the academia. And a lot of these groups come without any preparation. So we are talking about challenges that they are facing for the first time when they are changing their schools. Because in many cases, these students study in schools in, their, in the periphery, for example. So if they come to the Hebrew University, it means they were the best in their schools. And for the first time, they are facing something that they haven't faced in their life. So let's take Ethiopian, who is a first generation, maybe Israeli, and first generation into academic and intellectual education and thinking, and take an Arab from the periphery, and take an ultra-Orthodox woman who was deprived from proper education, and they come into the molding process of, the, of yours. Can they cooperate? Do they empower each other? Or they keep the, the, the tribes of separation even under the academic life? So I just came from a conference that I gave a talk about exactly about this. Share, share with us. Yes, so two things. First of thing, first thing, sorry, if you want the other to understand you and cooperate with you, he should come with a very strong sense of his identity. So I will not bring the Arab student first year to start talking about the Palestinian issues and the Israeli-Palestinian problems first time in his academia while he is facing a lot of issues related to his identity. As I said before that, these students were majority in their schools. Suddenly they are sitting in a class and all the people around them are Jewish. And suddenly they have to speak Hebrew. They have spoken only Arabic until this point. So we can't take them and throw them to the discussion groups of multiculturalism before strengthening their sense of belonging and their sense of identity. So we at the university work into two tracks. First, we have a lot of programs for the groups separately. We have a program for the Haredi students. We have a program for Arab students called Hawiya, Zihut, Identity. We have a program for first generation to education. So we also give the student the opportunity to face their own issues and their own identity. Second thing that we are doing, we have a university level programs. For example, we have a project that we just started last year and we expanded it for this year. It's called the inclusive class in which we make students do assignments in mixed groups. And the main goal for this is making students discuss and talk with each other. Because if you come to the university, I'm not sure how does it work here, but usually if you come to the class, you see the Arab students sitting together, the Jewish students sitting together, the ultra-Orthodox students together. Like within the groups, you see also the separation. So for the first time, we are asking them and we are giving, you know, the, the professors at the university, they went into two days of workshop how to do it because not everyone can do it. Okay, so we have to teach also the professors to implement this program. And for the first time, they are doing their assignments in mixed groups. And this actually project is based on research showing that the best way to change attitudes of students is doing something in classrooms and not taking them and asking them, now you have a room and Muna, you have to go to discussion group and talk about your identities, okay? This doesn't mean that we don't encourage these, all these groups who come from bottom up, okay? We have a lot of student initiatives for these discussions. For example, we have a group for interfaith group in which Muslim, Christian, and Jewish students discuss issues related to social issues and how they are represented in the... Religious books. So all of a sudden, the university is not just a source of information, but it actually, in a way, works or tries to work with the identity of the students. It's much more than classic academic uh, um, task, no? Yeah, we and are... then, who authorized you to educate me? So... You, can, you decided to come to the Hebrew University, and actually, this is something that we publish all the time, that one of our goals is to make students meet each other. So I'm not forcing you, if you will say in this class, for example, I don't want to do the, the assignment with a Jewish student and you are an Arab, no one will force you. Fortunately, 
we almost have no one saying that they don't want to participate in this project. From the Jewish side as well? From both sides. Most of the students accepted that. And the only case we had some student that complained about it, it's because the Jewish student, when they wrote their assignments, they re-edited what she wrote. So she got mad at that. But usually we didn't get these responses. So if you talk about who gave us this responsibility or who say that we can do it, it's something, it's based on our perception. We have a responsibility as an institution that think that we have to do something in this Israeli society. So we believe that first of all, we should be, and as Daniel mentioned earlier, we think it's an opportunity to make our institution diverse because we believe that diversity and not only believe, studies show that, that diversity is very important for excellency. So first we want to be diverse, but then the research showed that these diverse groups, when they come to the university, they don't feel that they belong to the university. So we have to do a lot of steps to make them feel part of this university. First thing, for example, and if you have been at the university, you came for many years, if you have, I'm sure you noticed, that now all the signs at the university are translated into three languages, Hebrew, Arabic, and English. All new signs should be translated into three languages, all the names, everything into three languages. And one of the important things that we want to show the Arab students that they are part of this university and also international students. Because in the past, all the signs were in English, in Hebrew. So if you were also an international student, you will not be able, you wouldn't, you haven't been able to read what is written there. So we are now translating everything. So this is like a symbolic Knowing your thing. campus, I can get lost in three languages. Yes, in I the know corridors that. of the campus, <laughs> but that's a different question. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by what you say, okay? Let's say that universities in general, and particularly the Hebrew University, which is chronologically and by perception for sure, sees itself as the mother of all Israeli uh, universities, is, if, if I understand you correctly, is the launching pad of individuals who might function differently in a diverse society. But the way I see the Israeli society, I mean, the more you have programs for diversity and tolerance and a contain, containing and accepting the other, the less the society responds. The society is more extreme. The city itself is much more harsher toward any other. So, first of all, I am happy to have the opportunity to do that in a place that allows me to do it. Mm -hmm. And they pay me for that, which is very yeah, important. I understand the issue of the payment. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I think that when we have this opportunity to do something like that at the university, in a place, actually, it's almost a, as a size of a village. We are more than 30,000 people at the university, even more. We have 25,000 students, and I think we have more than 5,000 employees. So it's almost like a small Arab village. So if we can do something in this place, also we believe that we can affect the society. First, by our students, because they will be our ambassadors in their societies. Other thing is by what we are talking about, and now we, we are, I'm meeting you and other people will hear about it. And I give lectures in many places. And for example, I did that in the, for the people from the Minister of Justice and I told them about the project that we have and I can share with you about translating call for positions into Arabic. And when I shared that with them, a week or two weeks after, they sent me that they implemented and they, published the call for positions in Arabic. And it was important because one of the things that we were, at least I asked for many times at the university, is to translate these things into Arabic. And immediately people told me, why you should translate it into Arabic? People should know Hebrew if they want to work at the Hebrew University. And I said, it's okay, they should know Hebrew, but the message is, the, is more important than the act itself, because people we are writing in the call of position, even if it translated into Arabic, that these people should have a degree and should know a Hebrew, okay? And we did, it's, it was like an experiment, but because we had to do it, 
We didn't think that this will be the results. And we published something in Hebrew for call for position for secretary in the School of Social Work when I worked. And we had zero applicants, zero people applied, mm. Jewish and Arabs, not only Jewish, not only Arabs. And then we said, okay, let's translate it into Arabic. Let's see, maybe there are Arab people who want to come, you know. We translated that into Arabic and how many people applied? 25,000, the entire village. <laughs> 26 people, okay? It means that there were 26 people who could apply for this position, but when it was in Hebrew, no one of them thought it, it's, for something, them. For, it's for them. Mm -hmm. When it was translated in Arabic and it was published in Hebrew first and Arabic in the bottom, okay? Not Arabic first, Hebrew first, Arabic in the bottom. 26 Arab people applied for this position. All of them have degrees. Many of them, their degrees are from the Hebrew University. They speak fluent Hebrew. And we have now in the School of Social Work between four and five Arab uh, administrative staff. When I learned, we had zero or maybe one, one actually. Let's walk down from the top of the campus. Let's go out of the campus which you know how difficult it is to find your way out of the campus, literally speaking and, uh, and um, conceptually speaking. How many of your 25,000 students coming from Jerusalem and how many from the rest of the country? Jerusalem, is Jerusalem or all Jerusalem? So is Jerusalem Arabs? I mean, how many of the 25,000 Arabs? No, we ha let's talk about the... Uh among the Arab group, yeah. we have 30% from East Jerusalem, 70% not from East Jerusalem. Compared to seven years ago, we have 99% not from East Jerusalem and maybe, maybe 1% from East Jerusalem. Okay. So we have done a huge change in that respect. A moment of introduction for our audience, okay? Between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, we have at least three um, three potential beings of being a Palestinian. You have a Palestinian with an Israeli idea, which is a full citizen with built-in problems, but a full citizenship can vote and be elected. You have West Bank people, I leave Gaza South, which are, it's, a, it's an authority of itself, but nothing to do with the Israeli citizenship or residency. And you have East Jerusalem, which is a kind of in-between. Third of Jerusalemites are Palestinian Jerusalemites, they have the right to vote for the municipality, but not to vote for the national parliament. So it's a kind of residency rather than citizenship. Now, 30% of your students are coming from there, from this quarter. When they meet at the campus, where is, is, is that frustrating for them to say, as you said earlier, when I live among my own, I don't know there isn't any different reality. All of a sudden, I meet 70% other Palestinians who are having better rights, better equality, better access to positions, better education. Describe to me the meeting between Palestinian and Palestinian Jerusalemites and the rest of the country. It's not easy. And surprisingly, students from East Jerusalem spoke about it more than other students. Mm. I say surprisingly because I think we, the Arabs, as other communities, we want, like to keep our laundry, the dirty laundry at home. But in this case, I was so happy to hear students from East Jerusalem talking about this challenge, saying that in some cases, it's not only the conflict or the situation or the tension with the Jewish students, which is more obvious, but it's also with Arab students that they come from different places. Arab students who come from the north, for example, they have much better Hebrew. Jewish uh, Arab students from East Jerusalem, they don't have as good Hebrew as Arab, other Arab students. And then they feel that even they are competing with other Arab students. And in some cases, there are also like less of acceptance between them. But it's not a big problem, I think, it happens sometimes when there are tension in Israel at all, and then it was, it's sometimes it's reflected in these groups also, between them. The Palestinian students from East Jerusalem, the Palestinian students from Israel, and the Jewish students. And we should start with saying that Israel is very complicated. And really? 
Yes, we no, never, never, thought, never thought about it. I, long, I live among my own people. It's not, comp yeah. Yeah, but, but taking this into consideration, I should say again, as the situation in Israel, that it's complicated, but we still, like, we have a lot of initiatives that are between these groups, and students are talking, learning with each other, and they start knowing each other, you know. It's also for the first time, as I mentioned earlier, for the first time, the Arab student who come from the north also meets the Jewish students. For the first, almost for the first time, people from the north or central parts of Israel meet with people from East Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So they should get to know each other. And sometimes at the beginning, it's not easy. And then... I like to go to... They two. know how to live together, I think. They, they do know. They do know, okay. of course. Be better than people who do not go through this molding experience. Yes, because they get to know each other, you know, they get to learn with each other, they get to do discussions with each other, and then you see, you know, okay, yeah, we might be different, we have a different, you know, even situation with our citizenship and residency, when, we have different... When I was a student at Hebrew, we lived together at the sense that the, some of the Jewish students that today some of them are ministers in the cabinet, went after the Palestinians with bicycle chain in order to enhance a kind of violent coexistence. The campus was very political, very tense, and very aggressive between the various groups. Is it still today like that? You know, I was told so many times about this period, and what is unfortunate that these people are also in the parliament now, so... Unfortunately, they exist, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I can say that we don't have... We have a lot of political activities. Our students are active, and we are encouraging them to be active, but we don't get to this... Violent. Violent, no. Okay. Some of the groups you described are coming from communities that violence is is presented in their life, be it the Israeli, the, the Arab community, be it the Ethiopian one, which we go to jails. I mean, the rate of, the, of, of prisoners from Ethiopian origin are much higher than the uh, proportion, uh, percentage in the population. How does that reflect that you go for higher education, which is out of the circle of uh, the pathological relationship and you have to go back home every weekend, every day. I mean, women's status is different in the campus and at home. So how is the relationship all, between the archaic home and the progressive university? So first of all, uh, we didn't mention that we focus on my role as the vice president for strategy and diversity, but my field of research is violence and delinquency. So thank you for the question. I can finally talk <laughs> I read, about my I, research. I, I read your CV in your publications. <laughs> I put it like this. You published more stuff than I will ever read in my life. <laughs> so whatever I touch is something you published about. So go on. So I will say that, first of all, it's very important that they are coming to the university, despite the challenges that you mentioned. Because in my research on school violence and delinquency, we know that there is strong relationship between achievement in the school and less violence. So we know that the more people go to the universities, the more they will educate their kids because we know that there is a significant relationship also between parental education, especially mother's education and children's education. So this way we can make more educated population. So first of all, it's very important and very good. And in these populations, one of the things that we know that, we know, that most of the students are females. For, from East Jerusalem, we have more than 70% females. Same for Arab students who are not from East Jerusalem. Same for Ethiopian students. Same for Bedouin students from the South. Why is that? So there are many reasons for that. First of thing, because of, I think, in many cases, in traditional societies, if you want to make your, or to keep the safety of your children, so you prefer that the girls will go or the females will go for university. And if you have to choose between your boy or girl who will go work, so you will send the boy to work in many cases, if, especially in works that you don't have education. So 
we know that these kind of jobs are not like very accepted for females in these societies. And there are not a lot of opportunities for job opportunities in the Arab society or in the traditional societies. So females go for university more. The second thing that if we look at the matriculation exams, we see that the females have higher achievements. And this is actually going back to what I talk about, about the differences between how we raise boys and girls, especially in traditional societies, that we give boys more freedom. In some cases, this freedom actually affects them negatively. And we control more the females while they are focusing more in their studies, in their schooling, and they have higher achievement. You say something very controversial, Mona. You say, actually, I take upon myself as an institution, I'll say improve, but it's judgmental, the, the, the situation of the one, less violent, more exposed to diversity, chances for promotion, open uh, professional vocational uh, uh, horizons. And maybe the cost of it is that you as an institution attack the traditional structure of the society and the family. Why do you think we attacked it? Like it wasn't attacked before. Let's say I take the woman you just described. 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe like my mom, she's a, she was a housewife. She was well protected for whatever protection is needed. Mm-hmm. Now all of a sudden she goes out. All of a sudden she's more educated, maybe smarter, maybe exposed to more experiences than the boys in the family or the husband at home, etc. It's... So, it's an introduction of a, of a foreign power. So let's put it this way. We have two options. To say, okay, you are very successful. You live in traditional society. And because the society is traditional, actually you got advantage as a female, okay? You are better, at least in achievement. But we are a university because we don't want to attack the traditional society stay at home. We are a university, a liberal university, and we want to get the best students. The best students in this case are the females. We are encouraging in many cases to to, uh, invest in the education of males, but not by taking out the females from from the game, okay? So when we are having now a new project, it's called a gap year, which is funded by Yad Nadiv and the Rothschild Foundation and in this case, we chose a lot of excellent students for this project. And one of the things that we said, if we have, of course, most of the students that we chose, like that were selected, of course, they were females. But we said, if we have a female and a male with the same achievements, let's take the male. In this case, and this is why when I hear a lot of people talking about empowering the females in the Arab society, the girls, okay, not females, there are different between those who come to university. I said, do you know the numbers? Do you know who, with who, in whom we should be invested now? In the minority coming to university, i.e. men. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If we are talking about 70% of our students are females, and do you want to invest more? in females' education, and then we wonder what's going on in the Arab society. While we have, again, a lot of females going for higher education, less male going for higher education, they are less, they have less achievements, and in many cases, not always, it doesn't mean that all the people that they don't have achievement or don't have matriculation, you know, degrees, that they go for violence and delinquency, but of course, it opens the door for this track. So we have to think again about all this empowering. What happens, what happens in other places in the world? So I just came from Morocco, and they have the same trend. And they told me actually the same thing, that more females than men are coming to the Who are the minorities? The Berbers in Morocco, I mean. Yeah, but we talk about gender issues. Gender so issues about mainly. About gender okay. issues and the same thing we had in, in So Morocco. North Africa is something like that, where other in, Where females are more than males. In, but unfortunately, of course, like I don't want to draw now like a very pink and very nice, okay? 
when we are talking about people who are in higher positions, these are the males, sure. you know. So there is something, and we are talking about professors at the universities, full professors, 80% or now maybe 75% are males and only 25% are females. So we know that there is so the challenge. challenge in the higher degrees and getting the higher positions and not at the level of the undergrads. So the real achievement will be that if by the end of the process, a generation down the road, uh, the equality between genders and the equality of everybody will be reflected from top down the pyramid and bottom up the pyramid. Exactly. That's a challenge. Yes. Let's, let's, again, we walked from the campus to the city, from the city to the society. Here is a question. You are an expert on, um, on the situation of children and youth at risk. This is where was your bottom of the, bottom of the pyramid, okay? I want to put a very abstract question on the table. We very gently and very softly and very carefully touch the, 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 the gestalt, the pattern of the Israeli politics without going into politics. Minorities, gender, Jerusalem, citizenship, we don't touch it, we're careful. But when you look at the situation, and you know it as well as I do, maybe much better, will you say that the Jews in Israel, a generation or two or three ago, were, abu were abused children who became violent parents and therefore the attitude of the Jewish collective towards the minorities is reflecting a kind of uh, risk childhood of the collective? One thing that I would never do is give an opinion about something that I didn't study. It's the same, everyone here can answer the same thing. It's not something that I studied, so I can't give you any like, you know, smart. How, however. However, yeah. <laughs> it's only <Yeah>. an opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a, putting a lot of like, first of all, this is something that we know not every abused person will be an abusive. <clears throat> okay, there are a lot of things in the middle. So we can't say that it's something that resulted at the end of the, Okay, so we know that it's not. And we have to think about actually if you want to do some solution of this problem and to stop it and to make, you know, this abusive feeling, to think about those people actually to take these successful cases, that people that were abusive and they are not, and to try to implement the track that they lived and the factor that they affected, you know, to break this relationship and to try to implement it, but honestly, I have no answer for this like very complicated thing that I have never studied, so I can't tell you Which means you have an answer, but since you are vice president of the university, you're not going to share with us and I fully respect it and you This is like someone who comes from the politics. Yeah, succeeded to <laughs> circumvent the question very eloquently and I admire you for this. <laughs> okay, having said that, we are in Jerusalem maybe one of the most tensed realities. You studied, part of, studied parts of it, okay? Jerusalem, the way you know it, the way you cross it daily, the way, and we are Jerusalem conversations. Is it the icon of the problem or has also the potential to be an iconic solution? I like to think about solutions. Go for it. But it's a combination because if you know the problem, you can try to give a solution. Mm -hmm. And we can't just keep looking at it as a problem and at the challenges. For example, I will go back to the preparatory year that we have for students from East Jerusalem. Okay? We know the situation. All of us are aware of the uh, political issues and how sensitive the situation for people from East Jerusalem to come to study at the Hebrew University, which is a Zionist institution. It's related to the Jewish you know, uh, tradition. It's, it's called the Hebrew University. And we have to think about it. So at the beginning, if you would ask me, do you think that in some point in a few years, you will have more than 400 students studying in preparatory year at the Hebrew University? I would tell you, and as someone who knows the Arab society, you are dreaming. 
So even I didn't believe in that, that we will have this size and this amount of people coming to the university. And why I'm giving this as an example, because we should be aware of the problem, we should be aware of the tense of the situation, but we should offer a solution. And one of the solutions that we give, give for this population or all we continue giving is education. And we are opening our doors and we are giving this opportunity for students to come to study at the Hebrew University and then they can be employed in Jerusalem. So we are giving some of the solution, but is it the whole solution? Is it the political solution? No, it's the solution, the solution for the current situation. What will happen in the future? I hope we the, as a university can do something, but you know that our ability isn't is limited. Just, isn't it just um, a platitude approach to a city which is torn between religious identities and not necessarily educational gaps? So again, I will say, always I will go back and say, let's remember in which position I am. I'm not a politician, I'm not a member of the... Uh, I think it was President... President... Rivlin? No, 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 President Adams, but I'm not at all sure who said that he was so sick of the politics of the academia, so he ran for presidency. <laughs> so if you survive it so far to the top of the, uh, of the hierarchy, you know something about politics, but go on. Yeah. Different kind of... A yeah. Different kind of politics. No, but what I'm trying to say is, yes, you are right about what you said, but I'm a university. I can't give a solution for everything in this city. So I'm trying to give a solution in the way that I'm an expert in it. Now to go and solve the religious tension in Jerusalem, like it's too much to put it as a, on our to shoulders to I do don't, that. I don't ask you to solve, but I ask you, you're in the midst of it. You're in the midst of it. Students want to pray Jewishly in the middle of the day and Muslimly in the middle of the day. And you have the tensions around holidays, around the important days, etc. So whatever iconic or whatever practical solution you give, maybe it might be implemented in some other quarters of the city as well. Yeah, of course. I would love if you would ask me what do you want from yeah. Jerusalem to look at what we are doing at the university. And as I said before, for the Minister of Justice, the same for the municipality, and not only in Jerusalem. I actually, not looking at Jerusalem, I always say I don't want the Hebrew University to be as the mixed cities. For someone who grew up in Haifa, I know it's one of the best models of mixed cities, but still, we live near each other and not together, okay? I will tell you why Haifa is so perfect. Because and I live there. No, that's, that's the outcome. Okay, you are the embodiment of Haifa perfection. <laughs> but Haifa is so perfect because neither Moses, nor Jesus, nor Muhammad Was ever there. set a foot there. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so. <laughs> ah, I will think about it. Yeah, okay, yeah. I have a couple of more, but I'll give it to you later. Go <laughs> so, on. <laughs> so we're trying to do things that I wish that these cities and these municipalities will learn from our experience. For example, praying, okay. During the last year, we, I was very busy, even today, with a lot of renovation of praying places for Muslim students and Jewish students. And when we started renovating these places, we looked and we noticed that the places for the Muslim students were not in a good situation. So we changed everything. And then we looked at the Jewish places and we noticed that there is another problem there. And now we are renovating all these places for the students. So we're giving them the opportunity to practice the religion, the religion. To tell you that I'm a religious person, not at all. And this is the important thing, that I'm, I know also how to separate my individual beliefs than my students. If they want to pray, I will give them the opportunity to pray. You know, I can't bring a lot of students, religious students. As you said, we are in Jerusalem. We have a lot of religious students and not to give them the opportunity to practice their religion, so. I don't want you to pray, but your name is Muna, and Muna in Arabic is a wish. So don't pray, but make a wish. Take your time. Yeah. 
and please make a wish you didn't study. Okay. okay, I didn't study. If I would make a wish, you know, um, like you know, all these people say that I want to peace in the Middle East. No, it's that's a good, <laughs> that's a good beginning. That's a good beginning. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I will take. I make a wish that is related to my work and not uh, that sure. I studied. I hope that students who come to the Hebrew University will believe and feel that it's their home. A lot of students say that. I feel that, but I'm not sure all of them. And in one day, if they will feel that it's their home, I think it will affect our society. And then we can implement that, that other places will learn from us, not only. They do not feel yet no. it's a home. So what do they feel it is? Just a... No, some of them feel it's their home, but if you look at, now we are doing a research about it, like the sense of belongs for, each, for all the groups, but we had like a qualitative study that one of the things that we saw there that the students talk about the sense of belongings. And we are trying now to do a lot of work in that respect. As I told you, the symbolic one is the translation of the signs, but not only. We give a holidays, two days of holidays for Muslim students, one day for Christian students in addition to the Jewish holidays. In the past, we didn't even think about it. When I was a student, I didn't th even think that I can ask for something like that. And now when we have two days, students come and say, ah, we want more. We want more days of holidays. So it's a result of giving them the opportunity to ask because in the past, they even didn't think that they can ask for a day of holiday in the Muslim or Christian holidays from the management of the university. And someone that you know started that and it continues now and we actually expanded the days. My father was the best father I ever had, was a brilliant intellectual among other things. And he knew books and volumes and shelves by heart. Now one day I asked him, Daddy, how do you know so much by heart? And he said, when I was in university in Germany, it was Germany uh, at, at, at the eve of the war, he said, I could not come on Shabbat on Saturday to university. I had to because otherwise I would have been disqualified, but I didn't want to write because I'm an Orthodox observant Jew. So I listened very carefully and learned and studied everything by heart. And ever since this is what I know. So the universities then were less tolerant, but listening to you to the prism through which you look in Jerusalem and at Jerusalem, I think it leaves me and leaves all of us with many rays of hope. Thank you very much, Mona. Thank you. Guys, the floor, the guys and girls, the floor is yours. Uh, Asher, 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 Asher. Asher, come over here. And say to the mic, who are you? Because... I'm uh, Asher Kaufman, faculty at the University of Notre Dame and also uh, from here, <coughs> from, uh, uh, from Israel. When you started the conversation talking about who is a minority, who is a majority, I all of a sudden remember the, the poem by uh, Taufik Zayad, we are the majority here, mm -hmm. which he wrote, I think it, won the, it was in the 1950s, under Israeli martial law. And he had a clear understanding who is a majority, who is a minority back then. And that takes me to my question that is, was actually posed by uh, Avrum. This was one of the most uh, wonderful political, question, uh, political conversations that I have heard without getting into politics. the core of uh, <laughs> politics. But... It was really, really interesting for me, and it was a heavily, deeply a political conversation. And I cannot not bring the crisis in which we face, that we face now, and try to make sense of what you were saying in this uh, context. And I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that. At least two of the groups that you mentioned think that uh, the crisis that we are facing now is a Jewish crisis. It doesn't concern Arabs. It doesn't concern uh, Ethiopian Jews because they have been excluded from you know, the, the political discourse uh, before and the, what the Jews in fact are fighting over 
is their aspiration to go back to the old order. Just and a commentary for our audiences 25 years from now. When they ask what, is, what crisis Professor Kaufman is talking about, okay? <laughs> Israel in the middle of uh, 2023 is struggling between two forces, whether to go for a constitutional, constitutional revolution to the side of arch conservatism economically and uh, legally, or to preserve the partial egalitarian democracy we had up until a couple of months ago. And the struggle is all out. Streets, courts, businesses, international economy, and you name it. And actually asks Professor Kaufman if I understood him correctly, how does that reflect in the work of what you are doing? I think he asked about the Arab population, why we are excluding ourselves. Not only. No, 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 not only. I, I mean, I'm, what I'm trying to say excluded. or what I'm trying to ask is that I cannot think that what is happening now in the streets doesn't affect your day-to-day -day work uh, because but of the population. It affected the, population, the Arab population and the Jewish population. Actually, in general, we see that our professors, our students are participating in the, some of these demonstrations that are going on for both sides, actually. But still, Arab students are not that active as if it was a political issue that is related to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And I think that one of the ways uh, it's also affected by that the Arab politicians are not involved this much, even though Ayman Odi has been trying to encourage people to participate, but in some direction and with some kind of rules of these uh, demonstrations. And I think one of the things that I read lately by Professor Mikhail Karyani that he is talking about you, are, you presented that as there are people supporting and people not supporting, and I liked his idea, and he said we are the third group, that we are in the middle because what was in the past isn't perfect, wasn't perfect for the Arabs. Of course, what is suggested is very bad for the Arabs, but don't look at what was in the past as the perfect and you know the best situation for the Arabs and the Israeli democracy. So we are again stuck in the middle of this thing. And in this way, because we are stuck in the middle, the way that most of the Arab population decided is not to be involved. You know, this is yeah. the way we are acting in this triangle, actually. It's not actually two sides. It's much more than two sides. And we are another side. And I liked his idea of like, the way he presented that. Actually, just published a paper today. I can send it to you. Thank you. Don't forget to introduce yourself. I am Nate Goodwin Kelly, a junior at the university. You mentioned one of the things you were most proud of was sort of the increase in uh, the population from East Jerusalem at Hebrew U. In American higher education, there exists sort of various mechanisms such as uh, the Questbridge Scholarship, and other sort of financial assistance to sort of enhance um, representation of minorities or lower income students into uh, integrating into the higher education system. Is this something that's done at Hebrew U? Is it, and if not, is it feasible in any way or is this an American lens on a uniquely Jerusalem problem? So thank you. It's a good question. One of the things that I should say that many of the programs that we are implementing are funded by the Council of Higher Education. So it's government funds that they give to the whole universities. And we have to decide what we want to do with that. There are some certain programs that we have to invest in. And we decided as a university with the Council of Higher Education to invest in students from East Jerusalem. So in the past, they were considered international students and they were asked to pay a very, a very high tuition to the university. And now students from low socioeconomic status, that it's probably most of our students in this preparatory year, they don't pay tuition. So this is the way we help them to come to the university. And we have a lot of scholarships for students based on socioeconomic status and other factors. 
and mainly for students first generation to education. And because many of these groups, Arab students, Haredi students, Ethiopian students, are in this group, so we can support them also. But still, we can support them with the tuition, but we are trying all the time to raise funds in order to help them more than the tuition because we know that they face much more difficulties than any other group, especially those students from East Jerusalem. They come from the poorest families compared to the other groups that we have in... So it's not just financial poverty, it's poverty in many other dimensions, including background resources, depth of knowledge, previous education, etc. Yes. Okay. And if I could ask a follow-up to that, uh, in, in the U.S. as well, there's sort of a definitely a general backlash from to these sorts of uh, programs. Do you see a similar backlash in your day-to-day I towards this I thought this, this will be your first question. Actually, I was preparing myself to answer it, and then you asked me something else. You so. can never trust our students. <laughs> yeah. No, but he came with the second question. Fortunately, no. And because we know, you know, we don't have affirmative action. Students are accepted with the same admission requirement. We don't have affirmative action. We have another program that we have, we offer it for all the students that they can apply for external institution and based on family factors, family issues, socioeconomic factors, and they can apply for it and get some, you know, adaptation in the, in the admission requirement, but it's very, very small. So all the students who are accepted are accepted equally. What we are trying to do is what Avrum mentioned earlier. We are trying to support them in order, you know, to close the gap that they came with, giving them, you know, tutoring, giving them more extra uh, classes after the major class, giving them support, you know, all these kind of things, but not giving them, you know, adaptation in any uh, admission requirement. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks. Dani, you want it? Um, yeah, this is Daniel again, just for the record. Um, I'll ask the question about you. Know, you were saying that um, for you, diversity and inclusion is also about identity and having an identity. Is there also a role for a university to challenge the notion of an identity? As in, when a student comes to the Hebrew University, you also tag him or her as Arab, and that being a relevant factor. Um, for example, dormitories at the Hebrew University usually separate Arabs and Jews. No, it's Jews. not separate. You can choose. You can choose, and nobody usually does. Or so a very small. Respect, m- you know, the students. Yeah. You know. Uh, no, no, but it's important to say it's not like we are not separating students. If you will come and ask me to study to live with a Jewish student, you can do it. Yeah, but but it means that you ask people. Yes. To to be ta- you, yeah. you're, you start with tagging them from the very beginning. He's Arab. He's Jew, and you get to actually choose if you want to live with the other tagged person. Yeah. So my, my question is, do we as universities also have a responsibility to challenge the notion of even that identity thing being a relevant factor? So you call it tag it, tag it. I call it cultural sensitivity. I ask my sister, mm-hmm. okay? She lives in one of the northern villages in Israel, very, you know, you can talk, call it Western village. Would you give your daughter the first year when she comes for the first year at the university to live with a Jewish student, she said, I believe it might be difficult for her. I, be- I prefer that at least for the first year, she would stay with something with someone who is closer to her culturally with the language, with these things. So I think it's something that also the student choose. And you can say in the US, universities challenge students and they mix them. But they are fortunate, maybe. They don't have the political situation that we have. And they can't do that. You know, you mm-hmm. should be also aware of your abilities. I can't start mixing Arab and Jewish students in the dorms while, you know, we know where we live. And we have been talking a lot about Jerusalem. And we are talking about students who come from very different areas. I will tell you for myself, when I came to the university, I lived with students, Arab students, from the Triangle area. And it also was new for me. 
I haven't met anyone, any person from this area before I came to the university. Some of the places I didn't, I wasn't aware that they exist. So I think we have a lot of subgroups in each group that we are still, you know, challenging. So I don't go, want to go to the larger ones with the Arab and Jewish populations. Still we can, we don't tag them. Actually, when you apply for the university, you can choose. We don't ask you if you are, we can, we ask you, would you like to be even with religious students? Because we know in some cases, you want to stay with other religious students. So we prefer to give students with this in the same place in order, you know, to lower the level of tension between students. If you are keeping Shabbat, for example, you don't want someone that plays music all the day, you know, in Shabbat. To tell you the truth, I have a lot of, uh, I feel very close to your sister. Me too, I do not want to be in a dormitory with some Jews. <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, it wasn't the Jews, it was the cultural differences. <laughs> okay. Right. Guys, anybody else? I want to thank you very, very much. Keep up the good work. I mean, we need, we need you to succeed. Thank so you. So we are all behind you. Thank you, and thank you thank for you coming. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Jerusalem Docs in D. For more information, please visit www.jerusalem.nd.edu.